Hip hop, hooray, ho, hey, 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 howdy, welcome back to another episode, Homesteads and Homeschools. Today is episode number 35, which means if you've been paying attention, or if you're new, or if you haven't been paying attention, I'll say it now. Homesteadsandhomeschools.com slash 035 will take you to the show notes where you can find links to my guests, webpage, Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. And of course, links where you can find the music that uh, is played during the show. I don't play any music. I whistle, I hum, I can whistle and hum at the same time. But uh, that is as far as my musical expertise goes. So yeah, you can find links to that. And uh, of course, links to support the show. Uh, follow me on, on Facebook, on, on the Twitter, and uh, all that. So uh, yeah, today's show uh, was with Kate Cavanaugh. She's out in Colorado. Um, she used to be a vegetarian and made a slight change and got into uh, the butchering scene and, and now runs her own butchering business. And uh, we get into sort of the whys and the hows and uh, really an interesting, interesting story. I, I enjoyed it. Um, I hope you all will enjoy it. Yeah, so uh, I, I will let her do the talking. I will let her tell the story. And uh, I'll add a little bit at the end. So yeah, let's go. Let's go plant those liberty seeds with Kate Cavanaugh. So uh, my guest today is Miss Kate Cavanaugh out in uh, Colorado. She kind of runs the show over at Western Daughters Butcher Shop. Um, she uh, she takes care of business over there, and uh, it's not just any butcher shop. It um, kind of specializes in uh, in not your factory meat, in your your sort of healthier meat, if you want to call it that, or, or whatever you however you define it, but not the industrial agriculture. She sources things and, and we'll get into it and let her tell her story. So Kate, thanks for coming on. Um, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Yeah. So um, before we get into to your side of the business here and where you are, um, why don't you get into your, your background a little bit? What uh, So I, I know from your, your bio on the the website you've been out there in, in Colorado for some time your family has right yeah I am a fifth generation Coloradan on my mother's side all right it's, it's a long time to be anywhere it's, I, it's impressive I, I can appreciate having roots like that that's a it's a nice thing to have but um so was uh was butchering always in the in the family or is this something that came later no this is something that came later um this was this was something that um, I don't think my parents even had ever considered as something that people did. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I grew up as uh, I, had de- I decided to become a vegetarian, actually, when I was a little girl. Um, I'd seen a very compelling movie and from there on out decided that I wasn't going to eat meat, that I was going to save up my allowance to save turkeys for Thanksgiving um, and was a very, very passionate, uh, small animal rights activist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's something, I mean, I think a lot of people, um, kind of go through, I know I, for a while I was, I was, I was there, um, you know, it just, something didn't, didn't 
sit right with me, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And but uh, so, how old were you when you kind of made that decision or started uh, heading down that way? Yeah, so I started that when I was five, um, and it kind of evolved. You know, it started as this this perspective on animal rights and animal welfare. Um, not that I would have necessarily used those words at that time, and then it evolved to be an environmental concern as well. Um, was learning about what factory farming, uh, the effects that it had on the environment um, in terms of emissions, in terms of soil health um, and things of that nature. And so it continued on through my teens. Um, And when I turned 20, I was finishing up college and I was considering what I was going to do next. Um, I had focused on uh, biology and sustainability in college and was looking at the idea of maybe going out and doing some land management. Um, I'd been really interested in this idea that of, of the grasslands of the United States. Um, and so the grasslands used to comprise 40% of the United States land mass, uh, which is something that I just think is is really a staggering number. And I became really interested in how to restore them. Um, and so as I started digging into that, one of, one of the best ways to manage grasslands and to, uh, to help them become healthier and, and more prolific uh, is to manage cattle on them in a really specific way. And so I thought that maybe I wanted to go out and do that. And as I began looking at these systems, these sort of, you can call it, they're called a lot of different things, whether it's holistic grazing systems or um, adaptive multi-paddock pasture systems. Um, as I began looking at them, I became really interested in this idea that that cattle were really helping to restore this ecosystem that I was so interested in and decided that I wanted to start eating meat that supported farmers and ranchers that were using these practices. All right. That, that, uh, that's an interesting, interesting transition. You can see how that works, though, for sure. You know, um, in the, 40%, I'm still trying to, like, wrap my head around that. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's massive. That's massive, you know. Um, yeah. But uh, so when you, what were you eating when you, when you were vegetarian? Were you, were you vegan or just vegetarian? I was just a vegetarian. Um, I've always eaten eggs and dairy. Um, I was eating a lot of vegetables. To be honest with you, at that time, I was young and I was probably eating too much cereal. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't think I was, you know, when I look back on it, first of all, my diet wasn't particularly healthy. And I wasn't really considering, well, I was so interested in where meat was coming from and so concerned about where it was coming from. I wasn't thinking about the rest of my food then. I do now. Yeah. I, I think, I know like when I dabbled in it for a little while, that was, that's one of the things, right? You're always, you're, you're conscious of that one thing. You're conscious of the meat. You, you understand where that came from. You understand how it got to your plate, but no thought goes into, you know, the industrial monoculture that, you know, is the food that you are eating, that you are consuming, um, and, and what that actually ends up doing to the environment. Um, yeah, absolutely. Both in terms of, of monoculture, just like you said, but also in terms of using fossil fuels as fertilizer, which I think is something that a lot of us don't consider being a part of our food system. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing to really think about food. It's almost scary to think about food and where it all comes from, but, uh, 
Yeah, so it is. Um, it's, it's sort of what I've devoted my life to doing is thinking about where food <laughs> comes from and being really passionate about where my personal food comes from um, and wanting to share that with others, wanting others to be able to find those access points to better food. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you make that that transition to eating meat or, or into um, raising cattle or, or how to raise cattle? I started by just visiting with people. I think that so much of our food system is about telling stories and about making personal connections. And so at the time I was, I was living in Arizona with my partner and I started just visiting ranchers. I went to the farmer's market, talked to them, learned about what they were doing and whether or not it fit with this sort of set of standards that I was slowly developing in my head. Um, and then I would go out and visit them, talk to them, see the animals, you know, see these, these regenerative systems that they were building. Um, and when I became a little bit more comfortable, that's when I started to eat meat. Okay. It's, it's tough, you know, it's tough trying to, to do that, to, to butcher animals that you have become accustomed with. But, um, anyway, it is, yeah, it is. And, and I, you know, I think in, when you're an omnivore, death is a part of your food system. And I think that recognizing that and honoring it and acknowledging it is, is part of being a consumer in this way. Yeah, it is. And I think the, you got to understand that. You have to understand that. I think when you understand that, you have a better understanding overall of the whole system, of the whole way things work. But um, Yeah, as well as your place in the system. Yeah. <laughs> we, have a, we have a space in this, um, both as predator, as prey, as something that will eventually become glorified compost. So. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, all right. So what I'm, I'm kind of curious, a little, little off topic is what, what is some of that, some of those regenerative, regenerative, um, I can't talk the regenerative, uh, methods of, of, uh, farming look like for the, the grasslands. Yeah. So really the idea behind, um, regenerative agriculture as it applies to cattle specifically is that we had, we used to have these 40% of the United States was grasslands. And so these were prairie systems um, with perennial grasses that come back year after year um, that have massive root systems. And there's some beautiful photos online um, of, of prairie grass roots. Uh, and they root down, you know, up to 20 feet and they help hold down topsoil and they help redirect water down into the ground. And it's really the only thing that that part of the United States grows well. It's very hard <laughs> to cultivate anything else without a lot of inputs in terms of fertilizer um, and other things. And so what happened is, is the grasslands were managed by massive herds of bison. Um, and these herds of bison moved both seasonally and moved because of predator pressure. Um, you, wolves, things like that would move them along the grasslands. And as they moved along the grasslands, their feet would kind of till the soil and stamp down seeds and they would fertilize it with their manure um, and eat a little bit of it down, allowing for a greater variety of, of grass types um, to flourish and to create these little ecosystems. Um, and it was really a, a symbiotic relationship between grasses and ruminants. Um, so animals that uh, uh, digest and eat grass. Um, and they're, they're, they kind of have a very special digestive system that is attuned to be able to do this, uh, very unlike us. Um, <laughs> and so 
what regenerative agriculture is doing is they're taking this idea of what used to happen on the grasslands and trying to mimic that in a smaller system. And so a farmer or rancher, let's say they have 500 acres, is dividing it up into smaller paddocks, usually using electric fencing. Um, And then they're moving the cattle. It's kind of a dense group of cattle comes through on one paddock and then moves on to the next paddock. Um, Depends on the landscape, how often that occurs, but fairly often. And so what that that allows them to do is they fertilize it. um, Their their feet kind of stamp things down and they create this little ecosystem. And then before they're able to eat down the grasses to the point that they can't come back, um, they move along. Um, they're, or they're moved by a farmer or a rancher. All right. That's, uh, yeah, I, I didn't know all of that. I knew I had an idea, I think of seeing, you know, uh, documentaries or, or whatever on how the, the grasslands kind of worked, but, um, interesting with the, with the cows moving them along. Have you seen any of it with, um, people raising bison out that way? Um, Bison are a little bit more difficult to raise in that specific way, mostly because they're not domesticated. And so moving them that frequently, because sometimes these animals are only in a pasture for a day or two, um, they're just not as accustomed to handling. And it's a little bit more difficult to manage them in that okay. system. All right. I can't remember what it was. I, I, um, when I was in college, I was in, in New York, and uh, there were a couple, couple, I don't know if they were bison or, or beefalo they call them or something i don't know but they were the, you know they, they weren't cows they were something else that they had wandering around that they they farmed um but anyway all right so what um how did you get into the whole butchering side of things um you, you kind of got out of the the vegetarian thing somewhere in your early 20s yeah okay and then when okay and um when did you get into the actual processing side of things? Pretty quickly. Um, I became really enamored with the system and really fascinated by it. Um, I had grown up spending a lot of time on the plains and I, I was just really fascinated by how I could heal land using, you know, this thing that actually ends up being food, um, sort of food as a byproduct of conservation. And so as I started eating meat and and trying to learn how to cook it and doing all of these different things, I became really interested in butchering it. Um, and I found an internship program uh, in the Hudson Valley in New York, actually, um, and went out and did that w- with my partner, um, my my partner and the co-founder of Western Daughters, Josh. Okay, where, uh, curious where where in the Hudson Valley was that, or what program? We were we were in Kingston, um, and we learned from an incredible butcher named Brian Mayer there. Um, and it was, it was good. So that was the, you didn't, um, I guess that was the, the certification process was, was that, or how did, how did you become a, a More butcher? A mentorship. I'm not sure that, that, uh, the butcher world really has these hard lines of certification. Um, it's just something that you go out and learn. And I think, I think it can, look like kind of an elite system. And my partner and I take a different approach. We've been breaking down animals for, for tens of thousands of years. Um, there's nothing new or secret about it. Um, and I think it's a skill that a lot of people can acquire. Yeah. It's, uh, it's daunting at first, you know, I I know we've raised rabbits before and I, I, a few deer here and there and, 
you know, it, it looks tricky and it is tricky, but you know, you do it a few times and you kind of learn. And I'm sure after you've, you've practiced, I don't know how many times you've gotten it down pretty, pretty exact. Um, but, uh, Thousands of times. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot. Uh, I have gotten it down and I think that it, you can definitely get a feel for it um, just by, I mean, even just breaking down a chicken at home is something that can give you a feel for the way that things have seams um, and that they have natural delineation points where you can tell that, oh, maybe this is a, a separate muscle or a separate cut. Yeah, they really do. It's really, you kind of, if you're not too queasy, if you're not squeamish, you can get in there and actually see, oh, okay, this is this is how this comes apart. And that, that makes sense that this is going to get broken down right there, but it's a, it's a different thing to get in there too. Not, not everybody's comfortable with that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that you can become comfortable with. I don't think I was particularly comfortable um, at the outset, but I think that it's something that you can find a comfort with. And I think there's, I think there's an intimacy with food that is currently lacking. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that it really provides you with some of that intimacy. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, there's just on, uh, just on the, the level, the respect level, um, you know, when you know where your food came from, when you are, are even remotely conscious that it came from an animal and not just like the store, um, there's that level, you know, and when you actually work with it and, and cut it out and, spend all that time and all that effort at, um, I don't know. It, it's, there's something about it that, that you don't get, I think when you're, uh, when you're getting out of a box or out of the, the freezer at the store, but I agree. Uh, um, I think it's a special connection. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, um, cooking, I guess, cooking the meat and stuff like that. How, how long did that take? What kind of learning curve was that like? Cause I know trying to learn how to cook like vegetarian food was, rough at first, you know, um, yeah. and I wonder going back the other way, is it the same sort of thing or, you know, I really believe that vegetables are the more versatile, um, of, of substrate when it comes to cooking. I think there are a million and one things that you can do with vegetables and, and recreate with them. And I think that that learning curve was more difficult than learning how to cook with meat. Um, and so much of the cooking I do at home anyway, my partner and I eat a very, uh, plant forward diet. So we eat mostly vegetables. Um, and our whole philosophy is to eat better meat less often. But in terms of learning how to cook it, I think, I think if you're excited and passionate to learn anything and you want to learn it, then it, it comes with time. Um, but I think that there, I, I really favor simple cooking methods. And I think that when you're buying good meat, simple cooking methods are all you need to really let it shine. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can agree with that. Um, where, um, where do you get your meat from then? Cause I know you're talking about, you know, these paddocks and different regenerative farming techniques. Um, do you get your cows from, from those farmers or do you get them from, from anyone or how, how do you find your, how do you source your meat? Um, so we source our meat usually by relationship first. And so these are people that we have worked with now for going on some of them six years. Um, and we go out, visit them, usually have dinner with them and their family, get to know their operation. Um, everything comes from within 150 miles of our shop. Um, and everything. So all of our beef and lamb are hundred percent grass fed. All of our pork and chicken are pasture raised. Um, 
And so it's coming directly from these places. Nobody uses antibiotics and hormones. Nobody uses herbicides or pesticides on their property. Um, and it's just from there, a collaboration. That's cool. Now, I'm kind of curious, the, the folks you get um, the animals from, do any of them have like certifications, have their, their organic certification or their, you know, grass fed, whatever label it, it, you know, takes to get or. Um, so we don't require organic certification though. We do require that our ranchers are working within organic standards. Usually it's beyond organic standards. Um, the animal welfare component of organic, I don't think goes far enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we go, several steps further than that. Um, quite a few of our, of our ranchers have their American grass fed association certification. Okay. And that, so that, that's a certification. That's something you have to apply for or show that you yes. do. Okay. Well, yes. But unlike organic, it's not as expensive. Um, I think the organic certification can be cost prohibitive to farmers. Um, and it is, it is not like that. Good deal. Good deal. It's always interesting because it is, I think the organic certification is, is very expensive. And if you don't have a gigantic operation, it's, it's hard to get. And even then, I mean, what does, you know, what does organic actually mean? And, you know, um, and I think that it means honestly less and less Oh yeah. Um, uh, in terms of standards and just in, in the way that we grow food now. Um, I, I like that, that model that, that you kind of work with there getting, getting to know the actual person where the meat comes from, um, you know, getting to know their, their setup and their system. And then you can make that decision. You know, I, I don't like how that guy, you know, I don't like their system, so I'm not going to get it from there. And why not? You know, and, and then your customer gets a better cut of meat at the end of the day. And, and I'm sure they appreciate that. So. Yeah. And I think, I think we all get a chance to make connections mm -hmm. um, and to build community. And I think that that's something that uh, when you look at changing a food system or, or, you know, kind of, being a participant in your local food system connection is really at the center of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It is, it is a nice thing. You go to the farmer's market and you get to know the, the same people and build those, those connections there. Yeah. And that's something I do every week. So my partner and I usually go to one to two farmer's markets every week. Um, and that's where we buy all of our produce, at least during the summer months. Good deal. Now, um, when you first sort of, started out there with, with Western daughters. Did you, how, how did you build a, a customer base? How was that in the beginning? Did you start out with a actual shop or were you just kind of, you know, pushing like a CSA type box somewhere or how did, how did that work for you? So we started with a brick and mortar shop. Um, and if I could go back and do it differently, I probably <laughs> would, <laughs> um, but here we are six years later and we're still, we're still trucking. Um, we started out with a brick and mortar shop and just hoping that people would find us. Um, we reached out to a lot of press and tried to get them to do stories on us. Uh, we've always bootstrapped everything. So we are our own PR and um, uh, our own bookkeepers and all of those things. So we wear a lot of different hats, um, but generally just trying to find an audience where our ideals and our vision connected with what they wanted from their food system. We always kind of had this idea that a butcher shop has this chance to serve as a connection point between an urban and a rural environment. Um, and especially being in Denver, 
and, and any urban city center, you have such a concentration of, of eaters mm-hmm. and consumers um, with so little knowledge of the other side of, 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 the, of the coin that grows their food um, that are very disconnected from a rural environment um, where most of their food is coming from. And so we really wanted to kind of be a, a window between those two spaces. And we slowly found people through sort of three different spaces. You know, one was they heard that it was the best tasting steak that they could get in town. Um, one was sort of a, a nutritional and health perspective that they were looking to heal their bodies in some way with grass fed beef or with bone broth. Um, and then the last one is that our philosophy aligned with theirs. And so we kind of got customers from all these different places and then it, it grew from word of mouth. Nice. Nice. So you guys sell, sell meat right out the door then? We do. Um, just, just like a, a supermarket butcher counter, but a little bit. I mean, it's quite a bit different, but uh, you come in and there's cases and you can look at the meat and, you know, it's all presented very beautifully. And I I was looking at the website, you do have some CSA um, opportunities there. Is that something that um, you started out with or, or came in later or? That's something that came in later. Um, it's something that I think is really important. You know, being in a bigger city, we see a lot of people that are concerned about refrigerator space and are more repeat throughout the week customers. Um, but we're really interested in, too, how you create those those CSA customers. Um, and we also refer people out to several different farms and ranches in the area if they want bigger shares, um, because I think share programs are really important. Yeah, when we were in Vermont, we had a there was a CSA nearby, and uh, and it was great. And uh, since moving down here to Georgia, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere, and um, there really isn't too much. Like there's one or two nearby, but you know, driving to to the pickup location is is a bit of a trek, you know. And, and yeah, um, you know, we grow some of our stuff on our own, and and you know, so it's not that big of a deal. But it, it is nice when you have that, and it's it's. Uh, it's nice to support the the local community as well when you when you can, you know. Um Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think with meat it's a little bit easier because you can freeze it and it can go in a, a deep freezer. And if you have freezer space, it's something that you can kind of learn how to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Do you take orders like that? If somebody wants like a side of beef, will you do that whole thing? We don't do that. Okay. Um we don't do that so much. We really do just refer them out to farmers and ranchers that we know and love. Okay. Cool. And just connect them directly. Yeah. So I know um, you you try to use as much as you can, right? Out of out of the cows. I know you know you. So what does what does that look like? What what when you're done with a cow? What do you have left over? Yeah. So so my partner and I get some of the best yields in the industry in terms of um, how much how much trash and usable meat we get. We get about. 87% of an animal is used at Western Daughters compared with about 63 to 67% um, in a more industrial complex. And we think that's a really important way of, of sort of honoring, you know, the, the life of this animal um, and the work of the farmers and ranchers. Um, and in order to do that, it's, first of all, we cut a lot more smaller cuts that you don't normally see at the grocery store. Um, because we can take the time that maybe a bigger processor can't to, to spend butchering smaller muscles and kind of teasing that out. Um, we offer some, we do value added foods. So sausages, 
Um, we make all of our own sausages in-house. We make all of our own bone broth in-house, uh, which really utilizes all of the bones. We actually render the marrow out of the bones um, and put them in little silicone ice cube trays um, so that people can use them as their cooking oil. Um, and just kind of using every, every last piece, however we can, we also offer some prepared products and things like that. Do you, uh, do you ever get down with the head cheese? (laughs) Yes. Yes. I have made my fair amount, um, of head cheese in my life. How, um, how do you like it? I think when it's done well, it's good. Um, and I think it has a lot to offer in terms of collagen. Yeah. Uh, certainly one way of looking at it. Um, but I think that with lots of herbs and the right amount of salt and seasoning, that it can be a really delicious product. Nice. Do you guys sell that or? Uh, we sell it occasionally. We mostly sell it around holidays. It's not something that sells regularly. Um, we do deli meats regularly, but um, as opposed to making head cheese, we pull pork cheeks, uh, which are really delicious, um, and get some other cuts off of that. Nice, nice. That's how I, I always wanted to try it when we were raising rabbits, but I never, I never had the gumption to, uh, to do it. I don't know. It was just, uh, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, between the work and then I just hadn't crossed that bridge. Um, yeah. I, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Any, any, any last thoughts about the, the butcher, butchering aspect of things? Um, encourage people to, to go get, now you don't, I assume you can't sell meat um, online or, or outside of Colorado. We can't, and I don't want to, because I think it's so important that uh, people go and find meat from their little ecosystem and their food shed. And so we always encourage people, if you're interested in what we do, go find somebody near you that does something similar. Um, and I think eatwild.org is a great resource for that. Um, but I really encourage people to go seek out, uh, a connection and a relationship within their own food shed. Um, and I think that's great. I think you have, you have one of my favorite, um, farms out in Georgia. Um, I'm not sure how close they are to you, but white, white Oak pastures is one of my, my favorite places and they're a big multi-species operation, um, and have some of the best regenerative practices in the industry. All right, I'll have to I'll have to check them out. I, I did not know they were down here. I, I've yeah. been down here for a handful of years, so we're still kind of learning where things are. Um, yeah, they just released a really cool. It's called a life cycle analysis, and they looked at the amount of carbon that they sequester on their farm um, throughout their practices, and they are a carbon sink. So they sequester more carbon than they output um, in their practices, and it's it's pretty cool. Very cool, and that was, uh, and I will I will put that the link to that website that you had mentioned was a wild uh... eatwild.org. All right, eatwild.org. I'll put that in the the show notes. Um, people want to find out more about you or or your practices, and where can they go to find you? Uh, you can find me at westerndaughters.com. Uh, you can find my personal Instagram handle at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H, and that's Kate with a K. Um, or you can shoot an email to info at westerndaughters.com. Cool. All right. And I, I, again, I'll, I'll put all that in the show notes if people want to reach out to you. I, uh, I appreciate you coming on. I really, it's, it's unique what you're doing, I think. And it's, it's important, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, 
I wish more people had an understanding of it and, and were doing things like that, you know? Um, so thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think it's out there and I encourage your listeners to go, go seek it out. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And, uh, good luck with the, the rest of your endeavors there and, uh, with the, the butcher shop. Hope it yeah, keeps, keeps trucking. Do you love freedom? Do you love songs? Do you want to love all 365 days in a year? If you're anything like me, the simple answer is yes. And Freedom Song 365 can deliver all of these things. When you sign up for Freedom Song 365, you will receive an email every day that delves into the different ways freedom and liberty are messaged in a massive catalog of music. Each message is carefully crafted into easily consumable paragraphs that give you the necessary information to share with your friends. I've been receiving Freedom Song 365 emails every day of 2019, and I've yet to be disappointed. But really, why should I be? With the fabulous minds of Nikki P. from the Sounds Like Liberty podcast, my guest from episode 4, Sherry Voluntary, and the wonderful Luke Tatum of the Culture of Peace podcast, there's more brain power utilized in the creation of each individual Freedom Song 365 email than is proffered in a whole day at any DMV across the country. Head on over to freedomsong365.com and sign up today to start receiving your daily emails of musical integrity. Use the promo code HOMESTEAD and you'll receive 15% off the superb service. Again, that's freedomsong365.com, promo code HOMESTEAD for 15% off. So that was Kate Kavanaugh. Um, really, uh, it's just an interesting story, you know, and uh, I think there's something to that. So, so often... You know, people climb aboard the the vegan ship, the vegetarian ship, and uh, you know because it'll it'll save the environment because cows are are really bad for the environment because you know meat is it's bad it's bad meat is bad um, you know and and sure it is you know the the big industrial meat industry is uh, it's probably not that good for the environment but when you actually step back and, and look at things and think about things, you kind of get the idea, you get the picture, you see, you realize that uh, industrial monoculture is is not good for the environment either. Um, you know, and so when you can use animals for, for regenerative practices, why not? You know, why not do that? And why not get something out of it on both sides? Right? You're, you're helping to restore certain aspects of the environment. At the same time, you are creating a food product that is much healthier than, uh, than what you'll find at the grocery store. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it helps everybody. It's, it's an all around help. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a little more costly to, uh, to eat that kind of meat. Sure is. But, um, you know, when you eat less of it, it, it makes up for it. And when you consider the health effects of it, it also makes up for it. You know, like, like Kate said, she doesn't actually sell me online. She doesn't distribute like that. Um, but encourages you to go check out a, a local farm, a local butcher, a local producer and see if you can't get something from them. You know, uh, we, when we were up in Vermont, we bought 
half a cow, half a grass-fed cow, and uh, it lasted a long time, very long time, and uh, it was it was delicious. It really was, and uh, when you can buy in bulk like that, it, it cuts the price down some, and uh, it allows you to to actually go to the farm to to see the cows to you know get an idea of how they're raised and how they're how they're produced. Uh, so uh, one way you can do that is go to eatwild.com. Uh, we we mentioned it in the show um, as eatwild.org, and that is incorrect. So I want you to go to eatwild.com and find someone in your locality that uh, produces good eats. So uh, onto a little businessy side of things, there is a new network of podcasts out. It's called the Liberty Hippie Network. And on that network, if you subscribe to that feed, you'll get my show, you'll get Free Markets Green Earth, which I am also a part of, and you will get uh, a couple other shows on there. There's a, a show called This Week in Liberpods. There is the Culture of Peace podcast um, that uh, Luke Tatum puts on. I actually had Luke on not too long ago, and uh, Cannabis Heals Me. I, I had uh, Rachel on not long ago. Um, this was all all before the network came together. But um, So subscribe to that feed, and you will get all five of those shows in one concise place. Um, so check that out and uh, should be adding, hopefully adding some some other shows to that as they are found or as they come around or however that may end up being. Um, and if you listened last week, you'll remember that I said tune in on Thursday, the last Thursday of the month for uh, a little a little something something. And uh, I'm going to remind you again. Come back in two days, and there will be another show there for you to listen to. Um, it's a little something. I'm just going to kind of give you guys maybe some updates, um, tell you a little bit more about who I am, what's going on here, and uh, the like. So, um, yeah, you know, like I said at the beginning of the show, go to the show notes, and you can follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, um, at HS and HS Pod, uh, Facebook. There's a group there called the Homesteaded Homeschool Forum, and I'll... Uh, I update sometimes with uh, people I'll be interviewing and, and ask if the folks in there have any questions, um, anything they'd like me to ask, or any guests they'd like me to have on. Uh, and you can reach out and find me that way. So uh, that's all for today. Come back in two days, and I will be in your your ears again, squirming around, making you crawl or making you fall asleep, whichever case may be. Get out there, sow those seeds of liberty. We can all reap sheaves of freedom together.